hey, it's great to be in church because really it doesn't make sense to worship together, right? I mean, in what, uh, what train of thought, what you know, worldview exists out there where we would wake up on a Saturday morning, show up to a, a building, and read from a book aloud. I mean, to, to many, it doesn't really make sense unless we're here to gather to worship Jesus. And, you know, when people ask me, what is the Alpharetta Church like? I always say one thing. This is a church that loves Jesus. Because that's really the point. He's the point. And so we've been in this sermon series, and so if this is your first time joining us, it's okay because we're in part five, but we're really just looking at individuals from the Bible and how they were imperfect, yet God used them in his perfect story. It's amazing that we don't have to be super polished, we don't have to, you know, always have the perfect word, we can stumble a little bit, and yet God will still allow us to be a part of his great story that ultimately leads to Jesus. He allows us to be a part of that story. And today we get to look at a, a chapter in Scripture that has baffled the minds of many scholars and theologians because it's almost like that puzzle piece that uh, you kind of look at, you know, the best uh, puzzle kind of, what's, what's the word, rhetoric, uh, uh, practice, when you're putting a puzzle together, right? You take the corners and you put them out, you might find a table that, that fits the puzzle, you'd be pretty doomed if you started and the table wasn't going to fit the puzzle, right? So you find a table, you, you take the four pieces, you put them out, right? And then you kind of build your way inward. But you always find that one puzzle piece that just doesn't look like it's going to fit, right? You almost, you hold it up and you look at it and then you look at the, the, the place where you think it might kind of go and it kind of looks like the picture aids it a little bit, but, but you're still uncertain. And even when you, you put it like next to it because you don't want to break the puzzle piece, it still doesn't look like it's going to fit, you're not convinced, and then you put it there and you slightly push it in slowly, and then it's just, oh man, how could it go anywhere else? And so today we're going to be looking at a chapter that seems to be that puzzle piece. You see, in Genesis, Genesis is often known as the preface of the Bible. Now, many, many of us might not read prefaces. We might skip over the introduction and we might just go straight into chapter one, I like to read the preface. I'll skip the introduction. I'm, I'm guilty of that. But I will always read the preface because the preface is why this book started or what the journey of the book is. It might be that you had a loved one who had to go through treatment for a, an illness and you saw their compassion to everyone around them and so you decided to write a book on the power of compassion. In the preface, you would include your family member and their journey and how it sparked how you came to the place where you were going to tell the story. And so Genesis, in many ways, is the preface of the Bible. And it, is, it covers so much. It covers creation. God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was void and without form. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. God said, let there be light, and there was light. It, it starts with the creation account. And then there's the creation of man. And then there's the creation of, of marriage. And there's the sanctification of, of the Sabbath. And, and then it goes into the fall of mankind and how they're kicked out of the Garden of Eden because of this thing called sin, rebellion against God. And then it, it kind of goes through various genealogies. And we might skip those because the names are somewhat kind of interesting. Um, I, I like to listen to people pronounce the names um, from, you know, concordances, or, or I often go to Blue Letter Bible, and I, I let the computer pronounce the name before I try, because I know I'm going to butcher it. And, you know, we'll skip, we might skim through the genealogies of years and years and years of life, 
And then all of a sudden it zeroes in on this man named Abram. Right? And we've, we've unpacked that together, how Abram was an imperfect man, uh, and yet through God's grace he's used magnificently. But then you get to this chapter, Genesis chapter 16, and you have this man Abram, who would later become Abraham, and his wife Sarai, who would later become Sarah, and they've just been given a promise. You see, they don't have any children. And Abraham has been given this promise. In fact, he's been taken out, out from his tent by God himself, and God has told him, look at the sky, and all the stars that you see, so shall your descendants be. Now, could you imagine God just kind of taking you around the corner and, you know, putting his arm around you and you step outside your house and he makes you look at the stars and there's, it's not a city, right? So there's, there's no uh, dilution. You see the stars in their magnitude, right? You almost can see the Milky Way. It's just beautiful, right? And he says, yeah, all of those that you can't count, that is going to be your descendants. And so... Abraham, I mean, how do you respond to that, right? Abraham just simply says, amen. That's it. He just says, amen. And then that brings us to Genesis chapter 16, because that promise has been given, and yet it seems like the Lord is not following through. And so we pick up in the story in Genesis chapter 16. It says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now it's interesting because they were just given this promise. They were just told, So shall, so shall your descendants be, the stars of the heavens. You can't even number them. Abram, when he was uh, called to go forth from his land into a, a land that God was going to show him, says, through you all the world will be blessed. So here are these promises that Abraham has been given, and yet God, it doesn't seem like, is following through on his promises. You ever been given a promise by God, and then all of a sudden, things start to spiral south, and you start to wonder, God, is that promise actually for me? It might be like Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. And yet, your way is not being prosperous, and, and you're going through harm, and you start to think, that promise surely is not for me. You see, Sarah, or Sarai, she has been given this promise, but notice what her word usage is. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. You see, when we start to doubt God's promises for our lives, we then start to think that maybe God opposes us. And as that festers in our mind, it makes us more inclined to seek to do our own will. And so what does Sarai do? See, in her time, in her culture, her identity would have been achieved by childbearing. She would have been someone by having a child. And so the very fact that she does not have a child, she does not feel like she has accomplished anything. She feels identityless. She doesn't know what to make of herself because the singular purpose for her during her time, her cultural narrative, was for her to have a child. And so the very fact that she's not having a child makes her feel like she's a complete and utter failure. And so now she starts to believe that God is actually against her. And so she comes up with this plan. See, they have Hagar. 
And so Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And in verse 3, after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband, Abram, his wife, as his wife. He went into Hagar, she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. Fascinating that Hagar, who's given into marriage, who's a second-class citizen in this home, who now has a child, she's now pregnant, starts to think of herself in a better light, almost with this superiority complex. Isn't it interesting when we look at maybe very religious individuals and they start to go through a hard time, individuals that might have judged us for our practice, and then we start to see their hard time and we look at the blessings that we've been receiving and we might start to feel a little superior. Oh man, God is opposing them, but he's not opposing me. I must be in the right here. And so Hagar, she starts to feel superior to Sarai. Now, surrogacy was a common practice. In fact, it's littered throughout the Old Testament, and it even uh, still exists today, even with medical advancements. And so uh, Sarai's proposition or her plan is not out of the ordinary. It's, it's a very normal cultural practice. But Hagar would have still been treated as a second-class wife because her purpose is to bear a child. And so, we are now presented with this situation where you have Hagar, the pregnant second wife, and Sarai, the barren first wife, and they're at odds with one another. Could you imagine the tension in that home? You ever walk into a place and you just, you can feel it in the air that there was a dispute that just happened? I have an older sister, and so I know what, what, sibling discussions look like when uh, you tend to be at, at odds with one another, right? And my mom or my dad would walk into the room and it was almost, at first I thought it was just a, a parental superpower, but then as I've gotten older, I've realized that you, some conversations, some, some, uh, some discussions, friendly discussions, can leave something in the air to where you just feel it the minute you walk in. You're just like, ooh, okay, this is kind of awkward, right? And you might try to turn, Right? Or you might see what nowadays uh, is all over social media right? with Karens. This, this trend of you know, individuals that are maybe going above and beyond. They're, they're raising a fuss in a supermarket or whatever, and it's been termed Karen, which is terrible. Like, who decided the name that we were going to attribute to that? And so you might see that on social media and think, oh, okay, man, that would be tense to be next to that. Right? Or, better yet... Have you ever just been in a situation that was so undesirable that you wanted to leave, but the uncertainty of what you would go to didn't necessarily present itself as ten times of a better option? For instance, I was coming back from, uh, from ne uh, Nepal, and I'm on this flight, and we're flying from Hong Kong to Sydney, and I had just had this rather um, risky meal. I'd had this rather risky meal, and so I'm sitting there, and, and when, you, when you fly on an airplane, you want to make sure you get the best seat. You want to make sure you don't get the middle seat, because then you lose both your armrests immediately, unless you teach yourself to fall asleep on somebody's shoulder, and then you just, you know, switch to the other one, and everyone moves away, and then that's the original form of, of physical distancing, is, you know, sleeping on people's shoulders on airplanes, 
because they will, they will get as far away as possible. And so I, I strategically had asked my parents to help me get the seat that was in aisle right next to an exit so that there was only two of us, so plenty of leg room. You had to put your bags over storage, right? So you, it's perfect. It's awesome. There's nothing to hinder my uh, flying experience. I'm just going to binge watch movies. But as I'm sitting in the seat, and it's, it's a nice seat. It's Qantas Airlines, and those seats are, man, they are above and beyond. I'm, I'm sitting in my seat, and all of a sudden, I just start to feel uneasy, just like out of nowhere. And then I start to, I start to feel my forehead, and, and it's, I'm starting to get clammy. My forehead is kind of starting to sweat. And then all of a sudden, I just realize that maybe that risky meal is coming to pay a visit. But the lady I'm sitting next to is having a terrible flight. You see, she is, she's Jewish, she's kosher, her meal was wrong, she was already not in the seat that she had thought she had paid for, and now she's stuck next to me as I'm having the onset of food poisoning for an eight-hour flight. Now, she's presented with two options. She could either ask the flight attendant to move and risk moving from her window seat with plenty of leg room to a middle seat next to no space, or she could stick, stick it out next to me who is now definitely in full-on food poisoning mode. What do you do in that situation? You're almost caught between a rock and a hard place, right? The uncertainty of the future, but the current present is no better. So Hagar is caught between a rock and a hard place. She's pregnant through Abraham. She's been given into marriage, but the turmoil in the household is dreadful. And so Sarai, over perhaps several weeks, maybe it was days, comes up with an alternative plan. In verse 5, it says, And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. You see, Hagar's situation progressed to the point where leaving was the only option. She was in such a, a, a position between a rock and a hard place to where she chose an option, and it was to flee. But she doesn't know where she's going. What situations have you been in where staying seemed terrible to the point where it was almost anything was better? The uncertainty of the future was better because Hagar, she flees. Notice how in the narrative so far, Abraham and Sarah have not once referred to Hagar by name. It's always by maid. She's the maid. She's the maid. She's the maid. They've not once acknowledged her by name. She has no identity. She just serves a singular purpose, and that is to have a child. And so Hagar, I don't fault her, even though she did have a level of pride, she flees to the wilderness. In verse 7, it says, Now the angel of the Lord found her. Hey, there's some good news. You see, we tend to, as Christians in the 21st century, our identity is not like Hagar's. Our cultural formation, the way that we tend to think of ourselves, is not like theirs. In their time, it was how we contributed to society. 
So we would be a doctor, or we would have children, or, or we'd be a warrior, or a hunter, or a gatherer. It was all about how we contributed to others. Now the identity narrative is, what do we want to accomplish? And so we look inwardly, and as we look inwardly, we start to kind of suggest things to our friends to try to be affirmed in that. And then the minute somebody starts to disagree with us, we feel like they're not only disagreeing with our actions, but with our very identity that we have made up in our minds. Because it's not about how we contribute to one another, it's all about us personally. And so we might not be stuck in a situation like Hagar, but we're stuck in situations all the time. We're stuck in situations where somebody disagrees with us because of where we lean politically. We're stuck in situations where somebody disagrees with us because of the church denomination that we go to, or, or the person that we want to be in a relationship with, or etc. There are so many boxes that we could add where people will disagree with us, and it puts us in a position where we either have to choose to stay and submit and deal with it, or we have to pursue the uncertain, uncertainty of the future. And for many of us, we flee like Hagar. It's almost a natural reaction. In fact, sociologists are so perplexed by this generational group, and I apologize because I'm also apparently one of them. I sneak in barely by, birth, by the year of birth, is millennials. There's a lot of sociological studies that have been presented on millennials and how they just quit. You guys ever seen any of the memes that are, tend, tend to be somewhat accurate? Millennials change jobs more than any other people group the history of the world has ever seen. Now, why is that? Well, there's one sociologist who, he was a Jewish uh, scholar. Before we even deemed this age group millennial, he was in the, in the 60s and the, the 50s, he saw where modern man was going, and he posited this, that as we started to look more inwardly instead of outwardly for how we would contribute to society, we would start to quit things over and over again. His name is Philip Reif. In fact, he retired from a world of academia and basically sat on his front porch and monitored world culture, modern culture, and in his tome, My Life Among the Death Works, he pens this beautiful quote, which is that the more and more we buy into the modern myth of man, we will quit. We will flee. And so we tend to flee, like Hagar. So what is God's response to Hagar? In verse 7, Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, Sarai's maid. Notice, he gives her her name and the title of what she does, her position in the home. And he asks her, Where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. And then verse 9, Then the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself to to her authority. Oh, but God, that's, no, 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 God, sorry. That's, you're not, that's for my neighbor. That's not for me. Surely, that's for, that's for that friend on Facebook that keeps posting things I disagree with. That's not for me. You're not asking me to submit to anything, Lord. I'm, I'm fleeing. There's, there's turmoil in the house, Lord. I was sold into this position. Surely you're not asking me to go back and submit. But God said, no, you need to go back and, and submit. But when the Lord asks us to do something difficult, and often he'll ask us to do something difficult, it's never without a promise. It's never without a promise. 
See, in verse 10 it says, Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants, so they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with a child. You will bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. Could you imagine being Hagar? You've, you've fled, you've, you've ran away, maybe you're a couple days' journey, and now the Lord has met you where you are, and he tells you to go and submit to your situation, and then he gives you this promise that you're, you will have a son, but you are to name him Ishmael, meaning the Lord has heard your plea. Could you imagine her having to go back, and every time her son is called by name Ishmael, what that would bring to her remembrance. So, notice, the promise is Ishmael. The promise is in a name. And so she's told to go back. And so she goes back. She actually calls on the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are God who sees. And so she creates this well and calls it Ber Lahai Roy, meaning you are the God who sees me. And so she goes back and she bears a son named, uh, Hag or named Ishmael. And look at verse 15. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old. So there's a promise, and it's in the name, Ishmael. So imagine, Hagar goes back, and Sarai starts to be mean to her. Sarai starts to, to bully her. Sarai starts to treat her harshly, and here comes little Ishmael running around the corner, and Abraham is like, Ishmael, no, Ishmael, no. What would that bring to mind for Hagar? Oh, the Lord is aware of my situation. Friends, we, we're all stuck in a collective situation that we don't want to be in. We're all stuck in a collective situation. We're stuck on an earth that is full of sin. And a virus is ravaging our world, not just America, but all over the world. It's ravaging our loved ones. It's taking away some of the precious things that we cherish, like gathering together as a community or going over and having potlucks or whatever. We're all in an undesirable situation, and I want it to be over with just as much as everyone else. I'm tired. I don't know about y'all, but I'm tired. I want Jesus to come. I'm tired. I'm tired of hearing about loved ones who get sick. I'm tired of, of funerals. I'm tired of broken relationships. I'm tired of abuse. I'm tired of drug addiction. I'm tired of all of the things that sin brings to our world. I'm tired of it. But the Lord hasn't come yet, and we have really one option, and that is to submit. But how do we submit? How do we hold on to some level of optimism when our world is increasingly polarized and negative? It's through a name, but it's not the name Ishmael. It's the name Jesus. There is no other name. You see... For Hagar, the promise was Ishmael. God hears of your affliction. For us, the promise is in the name Jesus, the Savior. You see, how does one go back, submit, and endure for a time? Well, it's only when we understand that when God says He sees, it's not just He looks at it passively. Right? It's kind of like I have this terrible habit of putting on a TV show and then kind of walking around the house. Anyone else do that where they just kind of put on something and then they just they get fixated on maybe that puzzle earlier or, or what it, whatever it is. And so they're just kind of walking around the house. Yesterday I was weed eating and I'd forgotten to turn off the television because I'm just so used to turning on something and walking around the house. But I know that I'm watching it, right? Carissa will come up to me and be like, why do you do that? And I'm like, I'm watching it. I'm seeing, I'm seeing it. I'm watching the show. 
I was outside, but I'm watching it. Don't worry, I'm watching it. Right? No, it's not that level of passivity when it says that God sees. Because in Exodus, when the Hebrew slaves who have been oppressed and enslaved for 400 years, there's a verse that says, I have heard, I have taken heed of their affliction. I am aware. God is actively watching. He's not walking around doing these other things. He's active, for sure. He's, do, he's doing all these things as well. But he's also fully attentive to our situation. Only when we realize that can we endure a tough situation to submit. And so for us, we see this in the person of Jesus. See, Hagar was obviously forsaken. She had left. She was filled with sorrow, and she was acquainted with grief. But she's told to go back, and she can, because one day a man by the name of Jesus would be despised and forsaken, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. It says in Isaiah 53, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. And so we can be stuck between a rock and a hard place. And it's the Lord that will tell us which one to choose. Because sometimes we shouldn't submit to our situation. If it's sexual harassment or abuse, physical abuse, whatever it is, the Lord isn't going to say, submit to this. But sometimes we, we do need to submit to that job for that time being because we need the money. Or we need to, to submit to the, the diet that our doctor puts us on because it's going to help us achieve a level, a, a level of better health. But there's always a promise, and it's in the name Jesus. Now, many of you are aware that I have terrible luck with animals. Um, I was trying to count how many dogs I've been bitten by this week, and it made it up past 15. So I am, I mean, I have terrible luck with animals. My conversion experience, I woke up with a kangaroo inside my tent while camping by myself in Australia. That was a a horrific experience, but probably the best one, uh, the best incident of um, an animal encounter that I've ever had was when I was in Nepal. It was on that trip that I was flying back from. It was, the, it, was, it was the best trip and the worst trip of my life because not only did I get food poisoning on the way back for eight hours, um, but I also I found myself in a situation that I just wanted to be teleported out of immediately. See, my dad and I current, you know, a theme of my dad and I always doing these weird things. Um, we're in Nepal, and we're in this Chitwan National Park, and it's this open park that you can kind of walk through, and we have these two guides, and they're wearing flip-flops, and they're, you know, going to gather, they're going to take us around, and it's kind of like Jurassic Park, because the, the grass is super tall, and they're telling us that you might see several animals. So you might see uh, a Nepali bear, and then the guide smiled and said that, you know, a Nepali bear is about the size of, of a small man. So, you know, when we, get to get, when we see one, we'll get together and we'll fend it off with these bamboo sticks that our guides had. Then they said, if you see a, uh, a rhinoceros and it charges you to run in a serpentine pattern or to find a big tree and climb up it. And my dad and I are thinking, okay, you know, yeah, sure, 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 right? We're going to see three birds and, and a stick and it'll be fine. So, okay. If you see an elephant and the elephant charges you, the Nepali guides, uh, the lead guide stopped and looked at the other one and then smiled and then looked back at us and said, you just pray. Because if an elephant charges you, it's going to tear down whatever you can climb. 
And then he got really quiet and said, and if we see a tiger, you look it directly in its eyes, and you crouch down real low, and you just back up slowly. And my dad and I are like, okay, you know, sure. They have to say this. You know, we, have, we signed waivers. We'll be, we'll be okay. And so we go off on this journey into the bush, not knowing where we're going to go, and we have to cross over this giant tree. And there's no handrails, right? This is the wild jungle. And we come around this corner, and we've been into this hike for no more than 10 minutes. I mean, we're barely sweating. And we come around this corner, and there is a mama rhinoceros. And it turns and faces us. And then I hear one of our guides yell, run. And before I know it, I'm sprinting as fast as I can behind my dad. And we're both being outrun by two guides in flip-flops through the woods. And I, you know, if you would have bet me money, I would have said I would have beat my dad 10 times out of 10. But for some reason, when your fight or flight response kicks in, I mean, you become a superhuman. Because my dad outran me so hard. I mean, it wasn't even close. And, you know, we, we probably ran the length of a football field, and we get there, and, you know, I catch up to everyone, and I was panicked because I was in the kill zone. And so I was panting really hard, and, and you know, it's really, really quiet, and our Nepali guides are just laughing at each other because apparently this is just what they do, right? They get paid to do this. And all of a sudden, then it gets really kind of quiet as all you can hear is just... <gasps> As, you know, we're trying to, because I just ran for my life. And then this herd of deer come crashing through the woods. I kid you not. And then, and then it gets quiet again, and my dad's color is kind of leaving him, because I think it's setting in that we're in a kind of a tough situation here. And then you hear a very distinct growl. And our, our guides shush us, shush us, and it's a tiger. You know, I've been to zoos before, but when you're inside where you're within maybe like lunch distance away from a tiger, I mean, it, it, it kind of starts to set in. And all of a sudden, you're just thinking, man, I would like to be back anywhere else. So what do you do in that situation? We're in, we're in the middle of it. We're in the jungle. We're not getting out. We have to, we have to submit to that. There's a, there's a tiger that is hunting the baby rhino whose mom we just startled. There's deer, there's, uh, I can't remember if it was alligators or crocodiles because I get those mixed up all the time, but, you know, there's those in the water. I mean, what do you do? You can't, you're, you're not just going to teleport out of it, you're in the thick of it. And as my dad and I are just kind of, the reality is setting in that, that we're stuck in this and we have to kind of get out in another way. We have to walk out. We remembered a documentary that we watched on Netflix that was basically with broken English subtitles. And it was this man who lives in Siberia, Russia. He just lives off the grid. His documentary was form, uh, filmed with probably a, a flip phone because it was terrible quality, but somehow I made it onto Netflix. And he had this one line that just changed everything for us. And it was about tigers. He said, if you see a tiger or you hear a tiger, you'll be okay. Because it is letting you live. It announced its presence to you. So you don't have to worry, because it told you, hey, we're here. If a tiger wanted to kill you, you would have no idea. You'd have no idea. You'd just be walking, and it would attack. We don't even know this man, and all of a sudden, we're fine. We're thinking, you know, hey, his word is gold. And so we're, 
We're going to be okay. We're at peace. How much more should we trust an individual who came and bore our griefs and our sorrows, who didn't just talk about helping us, but stepped into our situation and submitted to death on our behalf? There's no other name. For Hagar, it was Ishmael. For us, it's the name of Jesus. Chris is going to come up and she's going to sing uh, what a wonderful name it is. And as this song goes, I just ask that you would kind of contemplate what situation do you find yourself in? What is Jesus asking you to do? And how is his name that promise to get you through? Silence the boast of sin. 
a powerful name it is the name of jesus christ our king what a powerful name it is nothing can stand against what a powerful name it is the name of jesus what a powerful name it is the name of jesus what a powerful name it is the name of jesus let us pray father we want to thank you for just allowing us to come and worship today lord we just are in awe of the promise of Jesus. Lord, there is no other name. And so we, we cling to you, God. And we ask that you would be the one to get us through this. That it would not be our own strength, our own wit, our own intellect. But, Lord, that it would be you and you alone. Lord, we just ask that you would continue to, to encourage us and strengthen us. And that as, uh, as Sabbath goes on and as we come back to, to worship at 6 o'clock, Lord, that it would just be all about you. For we pray this in, in the wonderful and mighty name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Hunger. 